Please rise for the reading of the Old Testament. Uh, We will be turning to Numbers chapter 6, verses 22 through 27, found on page 144 in your pew Bible. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. Uh, Please recite with me the prayer for illumination found in your bulletin. Our Father, we have heard wonderful things out of thy word. We praise you for revealing Christ by promise and shadow in these pages. Help us to understand these words for thy name's sake. Amen. Well, this morning we're turning to a new text from uh, Genesis, uh, which we have been studying to Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. And our sermon title this morning is, Don't Take Grace and Peace for Granted. Grace and peace are often spoken over this church as a benediction at the beginning and the end of our worship service. And we just heard the Aaronic blessing from number six, which uh, points us to God's graciousness and his peace Wherein Aaron, the Lord's priest, the Lord's representative, was commanded to bless the people of God with the promise of God's presence to put his name upon them. To be a Christian, brothers and sisters, is to possess the grace and peace of Christ. And the magnitude and significance of this simple blessing is profound, and I have no doubt that it often goes over my head and over your head. And so as we turn to Ephesians today... I want to be sure that we listen to the Apostle and hear and receive and are truly blessed by this benediction. Our reading is going to be from the first two verses and then the closing few verses in chapter 6, verse 21. So this can be found on page 976 of your pew Bibles. This is God's word for us. Paul, an Apostle of Christ, Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus... And are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And turning to 621. So that you may also know how I am and what I am doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose. That you may know how we are. And that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers. And love with faith. From God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ. With love incorruptible. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Join me in our prayer for illumination. Our Father, we have heard wonderful things out of thy word. We praise you for revealing Christ as the fulfillment of the Old Testament and ask you to give us your spirit so that we may understand the fullness of your truth. Amen. Please be seated. There's a very famous photograph. We had it in a coffee table book in my house growing up. It's from the middle of the last century. Uh, Victory over Japan Day, VJ Day. And it's a photo, I'm sure many of you can conjure it, of, of a sailor 
uh, in a sailor's uniform, kissing a nurse in a nurse's uniform, such as they used to be. And this picture is iconic. I googled it to get a little background. That's what we do, right? <laughs> Make sure I was remembering it right. And the first article I saw about it was from the India Times in India. This, this picture is known as one of the most famous pictures, one of the most iconic pictures of the entire century. Because it summed up the elation felt in America, really felt all over the globe at the end of World War II, which was a global gash that consumed millions of lives. And the picture summed up the joy to innumerable homes all over the world when they realized that their 18-year-old sons and daughters wouldn't be going overseas, that those who were overseas would be coming home, that more lives would not be lost, that more property would not be destroyed. The elation and the hope for a better tomorrow, for rebuilding, for a future that had been in doubt. I didn't know the story behind the image. I always sort of hoped it was two strangers. And it turns out it was. Apparently the woman died in 2010. He died in 2019. And she never really quite knew who kissed her. (laughs) Peace is a profound thing. It's like that song, you don't know what you got till it's gone. We take it for granted, don't we? To have peace, whether it's global, international peace, peace in foreign affairs, peace in our homes, peace in our hearts, peace in our churches. For almost 80 years, Europe lived in the shadow of that peace. She harvested the harvest of no warfare on that continent. And that's been destroyed by a land war in Ukraine. Whatever you think of that war, it's a tragic lesson, isn't it? How we can take peace for granted. And how when it's gone, we long for its return. And the Christian life is similar. The Christian life is similar to warfare. The book of Ephesians will close with a meditation on the armor that we bear in this spiritual battle. The Christian life brings with it peace so infinite that it surpasses what that sailor and what that nurse felt on that day in 1945. And it brings with it this peace because it comes from God's grace through His Son, Jesus Christ. But it is easy for us to grow accustomed to a new state of affairs, isn't it? We take this new found peace for granted. Neuroscience tells us that the brain responds powerfully, of course, to both pain and pleasure. But new pleasure quickly fades. We become accustomed to it and we expect it. We pocket the gains of pleasure and we need more and more and more to keep feeling as good as we first did when we first took that bite of the donut. That's why a dozen donuts disappear so quickly. Lottery winners are among the most unhappy people in America. We don't enjoy a pleasurable status quo nearly as much as we enjoy its onset and the relief of pain that it brings. Paul begins this letter to the Ephesians by sending them grace and peace. 
He recalls them to the great blessing that they have received from the gospel of Christ. The great victory that Jesus Christ has won. Bringing warfare to its end. So that, he does this, so that they may be encouraged. As he sends and says through his friend Tychicus, who he sends to carry the letter. So they may continue on in those blessings. So they may resist those powers and forces that seek to drag them away. Those wolves which insinuate themselves from within the church and arise within the church. So they don't get dragged down in the weariness of their day-to-day existence. And each one of the elements of this brief salutation, which my outline in our bulletin breaks into three parts. The sender, the recipients, and the greeting. Each one of these three elements conveys something important about this grace and peace that, brothers and sisters, is ours today. Which the believers in Ephesus also enjoyed. And about the grace and peace that we enjoy and will continue to enjoy into glory by the work of Christ. So let's reflect as we prepare to start this journey through this this epistle on the simplest of things, of the grace and peace that it conveys to us. First, the sender. Uh, We read about Paul's ministry and his gospel uh, ministry in Ephesus in the book of Acts in chapter 18 to 20. You might want to turn there now just to run your your eye over it. I will be uh, reading briefly from it. Paul first uh, visits Ephesus around uh, 52 AD, probably, and he preached in the synagogue, and things went pretty well. They urged him to stay, but he declined. He says, I will return, if God wills. And he set sail from there. He had other places to go, other, other things that were on his mind. And he continued on visiting the churches in uh, Galatia and elsewhere. And soon after, we are told that Apollos, in chapter 19, a Jew of Alexandria, instructed in the way of the Lord, came to Ephesus and began speaking about Jesus there. But his preaching was incomplete. He only knew the baptism of John. We don't have time to go into that now. Uh, But the baptism of Apollos was a baptism of repentance, but it didn't have the fullness of the Spirit. And so Paul returned to Ephesus and baptized with the baptism of Jesus and the Spirit and the Spirit fell upon them. We, we, we're told 12 men. Interesting number, right? 12 men. It's as though the 12 apostles are being reformed and reshaped here in this Gentile city. And in chapter 20, well rather before I get to chapter 20, uh, we see that there is uh, in chapter 19 this great riot. It's one of the more uh, dramatic events in Ephesus. And it's followed up in chapter 20 by another dramatic moment. Later in Paul's ministry, he's sailing back to Jerusalem. He's, he's bound by the call of the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. And he stops by at the sea in Miletus. Uh, this is the port city for Ephesus. Maybe a half day's journey. And he longs to see his brothers and sisters in Ephesus with whom he had ministered for over two years, probably two and a half years. And the elders make a journey just for a visit, an afternoon's visit. The captain saying, we can't stop long, you know, the wind's at our backs. And he comes there on the beach and we, we see one of the most incredibly moving scenes in the New Testament. And I'm going to read at length. Paul says to them when he sees them, you yourselves know... How I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. Serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. 
testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there. Except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. This is farewell. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease, night or day, to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or imperil. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities, to those things who were with me. Paul worked with his hands to provide for himself there. And we see there in closing, Paul says that when he said all these things, there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. It's difficult for a minister, perhaps for an elder, perhaps for a believer to read those Words without tears coming to our eyes. About seven years after leaving Ephesus, Paul had gone to Jerusalem. Of course, we know the story, right? He had gone then in chains to Rome, and he was in prison. He was awaiting trial before Caesar. And presumably, likely, his own death. And we, we see in those words that he's ready for that death as long as he had fulfilled his ministry. And Paul identifies himself by name as the writer of this letter. And he tells us three things about himself. And we can imagine, again, as he wrote those words, why this letter takes the form and the shape it does. But Paul tells us three things in this salutation. First, that he's an apostle. Second, that he's an apostle of Christ Jesus. And third, that he is an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Um, Paul almost always identifies himself as an apostle in his greetings. And he, he always does so when the letter is from him alone. When it's from a team, he doesn't always say we are apostles. almost never does. But uh, here he says, I'm an apostle. And this word, uh, which again we probably think of more of a, a title of someone in the Bible. This word comes from the Greek verb to send. Apostello. An apostle is someone who has been sent. Jesus sent out the twelve. That's how the twelve came to be called the apostles. It's of a a nautical origin. When a ship or a fleet was being sent out, it was an apostle. It was ascending. And it wasn't really that common 
in the ancient world, the classical world, uh, before the New Testament. But it occurs all over, 80 times in the New Testament. And there is a, a biblical background to this idea. And the idea is that of an Old Testament uh, shaliach, someone who is sent uh, with the power to represent legally someone, uh, the sender. Almost like an ambassador in the political realm who speaks on behalf of the nation from which he is sent, the state, to the king. So Paul clearly identifies um, himself as one speaking on behalf of Christ. And this category is very important. You'll come back to it throughout the letter. The apostles are those who don't continue as an office. We do not believe here that we have apostles in Christ's Reformed Church or that there are any apostles in the world today. Uh, We believe, uh, in part because of this letter, that they laid the foundation. Paul will say that the household of God was built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. He's sent by Christ to reveal and proclaim the mystery long hidden. So, he'll say that it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, the gospel, to be preached. And finally... In chapter 4, he will say that the apostles, along with prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teachers, were given to the church. Given to equip you, equip saints for their work and for the work of ministry that they do in the church and for building up the body of Christ. So Paul is an apostle of Christ Jesus. This means that Christ has sent him and it also means uh, that it is Christ whom he represents Paul is speaking on behalf of Christ. When Paul proclaims grace and peace to the church, it is Christ proclaiming grace and peace to the church. Um, There's that wonderful scene in John's Gospel, the first appearance of Christ to the twelve in the upper room, right? And he says, my peace I give to you, right? Christ comes, the risen Christ comes proclaiming peace. And in chapter 3, Paul will speak of his particular calling. When he talks about the will of God, he has a story to tell. He can point to something. That Damascus Road episode where God not only called him from the way of persecuting the church to preaching Christ in the church. Remember, Jesus says to him, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? And he becomes a proclaimer of Christ. And not only that, but he's giving a particular mission to take the gospel to the Gentiles. Briefly, I want to think before we move on to the recipients of this letter about why Paul wrote this letter. As you read Ephesians, and I hope you will, um, I read it this morning. It's about a 15-minute read. You can listen to it on uh, the ESV audio Bible in 17 minutes and 37 seconds. Double time, that's like less than nine minutes. Ephesians is somewhat unique in Paul's epistles in that it doesn't address a particular occasion or an issue in the church. This is why sometimes it's called a general epistle. He also doesn't greet specific individuals. And this has led some people, you can always find someone saying something, this has led many uh, modern scholars, critical scholars, to say, well, this isn't like Paul's other letters, so Paul didn't write it. Like, Paul can only write one kind of letter. Galatians, think about it, addresses the Judaizers and the abandonment of the gospel. Corinth addresses sin and conflict and and the arising of super apostles who are preaching false doctrine. 
Romans, which maybe is closer to this, has this general uh, survey perspective of Paul's gospel. But remember, and we preached through Romans recently, Paul there has a purpose in that he's kind of raising support for a mission to go to Spain. And so he's introducing himself to the Romans, and then he closes with all these greetings to a church he's never visited before. Personal greetings, people he knew in Rome. He was trying to, to set the hook, you know, like, hey, remember me? But he'd spent two and a half years, he'd, he'd wept with these people on the beach in Miletus. He doesn't mention a single name in Ephesus. Here's my proposal. Not uniquely mine, no thoughts are uniquely mine. Paul is awaiting trial. And as far as he knows, his ultimate execution in Rome. He's getting ready to die. It's possible that he has heard some rumors of the wolves that he had warned about on the beach in Miletus five years ago. It's possible that he had heard of people drifting away, of people being torn different directions. It's possible that he worried that the foundation he had laid in Ephesus would be discarded and broken down as he sat there in a cold Roman prison. It's possible that he thought his imprisonment would lead the people in Ephesus to doubt his gospel. If you're a gospel minister, why are you rotten in prison? So Paul writes this letter as a prisoner to call the Ephesians back to the grace and peace they received through the gospel of Jesus Christ, to remind them of the secure inheritance guaranteed by the Spirit that they may continue to have in the church of Jesus Christ this sound foundation. He writes it to those elders. And I think uh, that the explanation for why it is a general epistle is because Paul wanted this to be sort of a legacy text. Maybe this is the the archetype Pauline sermon, right? He talks a lot about the church in this epistle. The first half, uh, this, this epistle very much follows a pattern of all of Paul's epistles, but it is remarkable in being the most clear in that the first half is all the truth of what Christ has done for us, the grace of God in Christ. And then the second half turns to how that truth transforms us. That pattern that we see everywhere is crystallized here. So I think Paul wants the church to keep this, to meditate on it. We see in chapter 6, he sends Tychicus. And he closes with the same idea, right? The grace, peace be to the brothers and love and faith of God the Father. Grace with those who love our Lord Jesus with love incorruptible. So that's the sender of this letter. And it's very important that as we hear this greeting, grace and peace, which is our greeting, that we hear it not just from Paul, not just from me, Because I'm an ordained minister who can only say these words with my hands raised, in our church anyway, only ordained ministers can say grace and peace. Because we speak in a special way on behalf of Christ. This brings me to the second point, the recipients. The letter is addressed to the saints who are in Ephesus, even those who believe in Jesus Christ. We've already seen Paul's close relationship with the Ephesian church. It's uh, closer uh, by the beloved Timothy, remember? Uh, We have other letters from Paul to Ephesus, but they're written to the pastor. (laughs) Paul to Timothy, I left you there in Ephesus. But notice how he addresses them here. Saints, even those who believe in Christ Jesus. The point here is that all saints are believers and that all believers are saints. He's not saying, I'm addressing this to uh, the saints who happen to also believe. There's no other kind of holy person 
than a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the word saint has perhaps lost its purchase on us. We think of it as a particularly uh, sainted or pious individual. If you grew up in the Catholic Church like I did, uh, you might have said some prayers to saints every once in a while. Uh, You have uh, saints uh, pictured sometimes in your church buildings. And you think of it as a title, Saint so-and-so. But Paul wants to tell us that the entire church is made up of holy people. Holy people. And they are holy as a result of their faith in Christ. By being incorporated into the body of Christ, into the church, which is, he'll say, a holy temple. We see in the following verses, just in verse 4, God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world so that we might be holy and blameless. He chose us to make us holy. And later in chapter 5, we see the same exact phrase again in that second half of the letter when he's talking about our response to the gospel. When he are told that Christ gave himself up for the church that he might sanctify her with a washing of water, that's baptism, and with the word, that's preaching, that she might be holy and blameless. From eternity past to the sending of the Son in the flesh, to Calvary, to your baptism, there's a direct line in God's will and purposes to make you holy. A saint. And you are today. I'm sure you don't feel that way. Precious. Blameless. This happens to us because we are joined together and growing into a holy temple of the Lord. Ephesians is preeminently the epistle of the church. We confess one holy, the first thing, holy, Catholic, apostolic church. And Ephesians shows a particular concern both for the church and for its holiness. This is a corporate holiness. It is a holy temple. And an individual or particular holiness, the church sanctifies its member. Brothers and sisters, discipline in the Reformed Church, in our Belgic Confession of Faith, we confess discipline as a mark of the church. And this means both individual, this is for the purpose of both individual holiness. Discipline is not to drive people out, but to drive people to repentance and faith. And it's also for the church. Like that temple had a precinct that unholy people couldn't enter into. If the church shrugs its shoulders at gross public sin in its midst, it's not a holy temple. The church is a, is a sign, a beacon, a shining city on a hill that God wants us to be holy and is going to make us holy and will make us holy. How dare she darken herself, sully herself. Only here, in his address to the Colossians, which is a very similar letter to Ephesians, Paul used one to write the other. So what? We've all done that before. You know, you write one thing for one class, maybe you tweak that. Only here does Paul address his epistle to saints who are also believers. By tying his holiness to faith and faith in Christ, Paul is emphasizing the role of faith in making us holy in our sanctification. Now, those who are faithful in Christ Jesus, this expression The faithful ones in Christ Jesus can be read with two different senses to it. Christ Jesus can be read as the object of their faith. Those who have come to believe in Christ as opposed to believing in something else. 
It's not faith in the abstract that makes us holy, but faith in Christ that makes us holy. The power of faith isn't faith, it's the object of that faith. Or we could read this as emphasizing that those who believe in Christ are therefore in Christ Jesus. En Christo. They are believers who have been translated and become members of Christ. And this is a very important idea for Paul in all of his preaching and writing. And commentators are divided, though though many of them go with this idea that it means believers in Christ. Now, they're not contradictory, and both can be true. And I actually think, along with one of my New Testament professors, that the focus here is that they believe in Christ. But listen to the great benediction that follows. We'll get to it next week. Listen how often this idea of being folded into Christ is, is taught and preached by Paul. We are blessed. He has blessed us in Christ. He chose us in Him. He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him, we have redemption through His blood. Uh, The purpose of God has been set forth in Christ. He unites all things in Him. In Him we have obtained an inheritance. We who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. And in Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. That last verse 13 really captures both senses, right? The gospel was preached to you. You believed in Him, and you are in Him, sealed there by the Spirit. I don't like to be too polemical in my sermons, but I did grow up in the Catholic Church praying to saints. And as I reflected on our our holiness as believers, you and I, dear Christian brothers and sisters, it dawned on me that it's no small error when the church a few centuries later began singling out particular individuals in their midst and calling them holy in a special sense. Yeah, they deserved it. They were martyrs. They gave their lives. They did other extraordinary things. But by elevating, there was this unintended consequence, and Satan likes to use unintended consequences. By elevating saints for honoring and glorification, it sent a strong message that not all of us are holy in Christ by faith. Paul wants believers in Ephesus to remember that as those who believe in Christ Jesus, they've been made holy by being made a part of him. Not only a part of his mystical body in some otherworldly sense, but a part of his local concrete body, which we all know is full of sinners. Right? We're sinners and saints at the same moment. Husbands and wives also are reminded that the concrete reality of their marriages, no doubt, so often, filled with messiness... Right? God said in the curse that there will be conflict between the husband and the wife. Nevertheless, are through that union being sanctified to be like the church and Christ, holy and blameless. God is working His perfect will in and through us, even through the messiness of our lives. Sanctifying us by our faith in Christ, which He grants us all the blessings of Christ. And in Colossians, that great phrase, we are even now in this mess, seated in the heavenly places with Christ. So we turn now to the third and final note here, the greeting. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul sends grace and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And typically, a Greek letter from this period opened with a letter of greetings, karen, greetings. 
That was the common, you know, dear so-and-so. This sounds similar to what the apostles used typically. Grace, charis, not charain, charis, grace. We see the, the more standard greeting in James, Acts 15 and other New Testament letters. But the common greeting is grace and peace. And uh, New Testament uh, commentators understand almost universally that this is deeply under the influence of the Aaronic blessing. The priests, all the Levites, sons of Aaron, were given the high honor and privilege of pronouncing this blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. You see there, grace and peace. As an apostle of Christ Jesus, Paul speaks this in the place of Christ. Whereas Aaron was instructed to say, the Lord bless you. Paul just says it. When the risen Christ, as I already mentioned in John 20, appears to his disciples, he says, peace be with you. And then he says it again and he breathes on them. He gives them his spirit. And his disciples bear that spirit to the ends of the earth. Paul speaks for the risen Christ. This is our unique prerogative in the church. Speaking Christ's word over his believing church. Note uh, who this blessing comes from. God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. God the Father uh, is our Father because, as we'll read a few verses later in verse 5, in love He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. If Paul were just writing as a Jew, like you know, Paul 20 years before he met Christ, would have just said, Greetings from the Lord God. Grace and peace from the Lord God. That's what a Jew thinks. That's maybe why James does something a little different. But Paul writes from our Father. And from the Lord. Not the Lord the Father, but the Lord Jesus Christ. That word Lord, which we find in number 6, is the same word here, kurios. Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is the Lord. And we, Gentiles, Jews, all believers are no longer strangers and aliens, but are fellow citizens with the saints, with the holy ones, and members of the household of God. It's that membership in the household of God that makes us holy. And he is explicitly and powerfully identifying Jesus Christ as the Son of the Father and as God, the Lord and Savior of his people. That's what Paul proclaims, grace and peace will become a central theme of this epistle. Go home this Lord's Day or this week, if you will, or if you can. Read through this epistle in a single setting and just underline or listen for grace and peace. God's saving work is to the praise of His glorious grace. It's according to the riches of His grace. In chapter 2, with that wonderful passage where we are reminded that we are dead in our sins and trespasses. This is that part where you go back to the dark days of World War II, right? We are dead in our sins and trespasses. But by grace we have been saved. By the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Paul has a special stewardship of this grace. It was entrusted to him to deliver to the elect saints in Ephesus the word of the gospel. He says, I was given this ministry by grace. 
Because he knows that he's the chief of all sinners. And we live out our calling by giving grace to one another in all things we say and do. We are ministers of this grace. That's the whole point of the second half of this epistle. And now to peace. The peace which we have. The peace with God in our conscience. The peace with one another is the fruit of God's grace. Paul closes uh, Romans with this blessing. May the God of peace, uh, who will soon crush Satan under your feet, grant you peace. It is through the forgiveness of sins in the ministry of reconciliation that this wall of hostility has been broken down between Jew and Gentile. That we have peace in this age. The message of Paul is kind of like the message between D-Day when Fortress Europe had fallen and victory over Europe Day. The victory was coming. And chapter 2 shows how this grace accomplished this peace. For he himself, Paul writes, is our peace who has made us both one, has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. The cross of Jesus, his blood on the cross, enables you to live at peace with other sinners. He has created one new man in place of two, so making peace. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. The Jewish people, God's own people, hadn't known peace Really, since the exile, armies of all the nations had trampled over their land. Their temple had been despoiled and destroyed. And now it was rebuilt and it was run by a bunch of kooks. The law created a barrier between Jew and Gentile, but Jesus tore it down. The law created a barrier between sinners and a holy God, and Jesus tore it down. In chapter 4, this works itself out in the church through the power of the Holy Spirit. We are eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This is our calling. There's nothing more tragic than when the church itself becomes a place not of peace, but of warfare and backbiting. We have been very blessed in this church to have so much peace over the years. But it has not been without conflict. And I have been guilty of conflict. And I've been forgiven. And I've asked for forgiveness. And God's grace has restored unity and peace in this church. He's a good God. He's a peace-loving God. He is the God of peace. And when describing the armor of Paul, Paul says that like shoes for your feet, we have been made ready for the gospel of peace. Children, this is for you. I want you to take a moment. Look around. And see if you're wearing shoes right now. I know this is kind of risky. This is like the lawyer in a courtroom asking the question doesn't know the answer to, right? Adults, we're all wearing shoes, right? Most of us don't leave the house, especially on a sub-freezing day, without shoes on. We're not barefoot. The gospel, in the same way, protects us from backbiting, from conflict, from division. Because it's the gospel of peace, which we must wear every time we leave our homes, every morning when we awake. Paul writes to urge us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, in all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Brothers and sisters, in conclusion, we are blessed to sit under this benediction of grace and peace today. Not delivered through a priest in funny garments, but coming from Christ himself by his appointed servant. 
I pray that it might be new for you, even as it is written, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Dear saints, believers in Christ, let us not take this grace, this peace for granted. Christ's surpassing gifts, which is showered upon us, infinite riches. Let us not take this peace with God, with our fellow believers in the household of God for granted. The peace breathed upon us by our Lord in His Spirit. Let's pray. Merciful God, what a privilege it is to have been called and elected and chosen by You to be members of Your body, to be here in this church, to unite our voices as one and sing Your praises. And we know our voices are off tune. We know our hearts aren't perfectly in pitch. But that your spirit has sealed us as members of a holy temple. And is continuing to construct and build and grow this church. Until we are in glory perfect. Made, remade according to the image of that new man, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Send forth your spirit, dear Lord, not only through this word through this sacrament, but send forth your Spirit into our hearts by faith that we might continue to be sanctified and manifest this grace and peace to the world in which we live, which needs it so desperately. Through the power of your Spirit, we pray. By the name of Christ. Amen.